Welcome to Cohen & Company's Chief Insights Podcast, a thought leadership series designed for C-level executives, board members, and other top decision makers. Hello, I'm Jay Larilla, tax partner at Cohen & Company. Welcome to this episode of Chief Insights. Today's topic is tax equalization for mutual funds and exchange-traded funds, specifically whether your mutual fund or ETF should consider using tax equalization as a method to reduce or even potentially eliminate a capital gain distribution requirement for tax purposes for your fund and your shareholders. Today, I'm joined by Robbie Singh, a partner in our tax department and the leader of our office in New York. Robbie has spent his entire career working with fund managers on complex issues such as this one. Welcome, Robbie. Hi, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here. And I couldn't think of a better time for this topic. If you look at the percentage of funds uh, that use tax equalization, it's a very, very small percentage. Even though this is one of the most tax efficient strategies available to a regulated investment company. When was the last time you came across a strategy where one taxpayer gets a tax deduction, but no one picks it up as taxable income? Of course, uh, there are some uncertainties associated with using tax equalization, and I can get into that a little bit later, but it is a valid tax planning tool. Okay, Ravi, let's dive in. What is tax equalization? If an entity qualifies as a regulated investment company for tax purposes, it is allowed a deduction for dividends paid to its shareholders. The rules regarding deduction for dividends paid are governed by sections 561 and 562. Section 562 provides that, except in the case of a personal holding company, a dividends paid deduction is allowed with respect to amounts distributed in liquidation to the extent a portion of such distribution is out of accumulated earnings and profits. Section 562 further provides that for these purposes, a liquidation includes a redemption of stock. So therefore, the amount that is chargeable to accumulated earnings and profits upon redemption of stock is referred to as tax equalization. Okay, Ravi, so that was, uh, that was a technical explanation, but essentially what you're saying is that the tax equalization concept relates to how shareholders redeem from the fund? Exactly. So let me, let me illustrate. I know it's a complicated concept, but let me illustrate this with a simple example. Let's say a shareholder purchased shares in a regulated investment company when they were originally issued at $10 per share. Over the course of the, say, in the next few months, the fund has earnings of $2 per share, which includes both net investment income and any realized gains during that period. So the, at that point, the net asset value of the fund shares is now $12 per share. At that point, if a shareholder redeems their shares, they will receive $12 per share, which includes $10 of original paid-in capital and $2 of undistributed accumulated earnings. That $2 that is paid to the shareholders is considered to have been distributed out of accumulated earnings, which is then referred to as tax equalization. And the fund can then take a dividend paid deduction for those $2. It is important to note that equalization calculations are based on gross redemptions so any subscriptions are ignored and it's not based on net redemptions. It should also be noted that the redeeming shareholders treatment of the redemption is not impacted 
whether the fund takes a deduction for dividends paid based on equalization calculations. So therefore, the redeeming shareholder receives the same information about their redemption proceeds on that 1099B. Okay, so so even though the shareholder has some capital gain that they'll have to pay tax on when they redeem from the fund, that fund then can use a portion of that distribution as part of their dividends paid deduction and reduce their capital gain requirement because the shareholder redeemed from the fund. That right, Ravi? That is absolutely correct. Yes. Okay. Is this is this something new? Um, why are we seeing more funds use equalization uh, this year? This is certainly not a new concept, and equalization has been around for decades, actually. But the reason why we are seeing more funds use it more now is twofold. One, there's explosive growth in exchange-traded funds. ETFs have always focused on tax efficiency and the most prolific users of tax equalization. The second reason has to do with the current market conditions. As you know, Jay, the markets have been extremely volatile lately, which has resulted in some very significant shareholder redemption requests. Just to give you an example, in the month of October alone, $50 billion was redeemed from actively managed stock funds. And the long bull market has left very few funds with unrealized losses on securities. So what has happened is the funds are forced to sell securities with unrealized gains to meet these redemption requests. So this is what you have now. Now you have a scenario where you have larger gains to distribute, but a smaller shareholder base. So thus, it magnifies the per share distribution disproportionately. And to make matters worse, because of market conditions, the overall performance of a typical stock fund has not exactly been stellar. If you look at the S&P 500, actually year-to-date, it's down 1.3%. However, more than 500 funds more than 500 funds have indicated that they will make capital gain distributions in excess of 10% of NAV, net asset value. Some funds have distributable gains in excess of 25% of NAV. I don't know about you, Jay, but I'd be really upset if I'm a shareholder and I'm being taxed on my investment when I've actually lost money. All of these factors have forced funds to start focusing on equalization and maximize their tax efficiency. Yes, Ravi, I'd be upset as well if I got taxable income, um, which was more than what the fund earned. So what we have here is the bull market approaching almost 10 years, the capital losses that the funds incurred in the 2007, 2008, 2009 period have been used up over the course of the past eight, nine years as the market's gone upward. And now you see some shareholders um, thinking that the market's gone way up and I'm going to get out of the fund. And in order for the fund to make those payments, to fill those redemption requests, the fund is going to have to incur some realized gains, which it's then required to distribute to shareholders. Exactly, exactly. Okay, and so we're using equalization then as a method to try to reduce that capital gain distribution requirement and reduce the burden on the remaining shareholders. That is correct. Okay. Ravi, are there risks to using this approach? 
Yeah, it's a good question because, you know, a lot of people look at equalization and uh, they kind of stay away from it uh, because of either real risks or perceived risks. So, yes, there are risks. Uh, so while the concept of tax equalization is pretty much established in the law, there is a significant amount of uncertainty associated with how you actually calculate the accumulated earnings and profits with respect to shares redeemed. And because of this uncertainty and lack of guidance from the IRS, the methodology of calculating equalization may vary from one fund complex to another. However, over the years, certain aspects of calculation have become somewhat more prevalent and therefore could be considered industry practice, although there are significant differences. I should though point out that there is an old IRS general counsel memorandum that concluded that earnings should first be reduced by actual distributions made during the year and that only remaining earnings are available for calculating equalization. If you actually strictly follow that GCM, the IRS GCM that I just mentioned, it would result in virtually no equalization. And so therefore, it has been criticized and generally it's not followed. Industry practice is to reduce accumulated earnings by the amount of actual distribution only after the distribution date. I should also point out that in case the IRS were to dispute a fund's equalization calculation, the fund can then make a deficiency dividend distribution, which of course they'll have to pay interest along with that to avoid a fund level tax. So as I mentioned earlier, due to lack of any appropriate guidance from the IRS, there are significant differences exist in how funds calculate tax equalization. And Robbie, that old general counsel memorandum, uh, for folks that don't know who are listening to this recording, that is a relatively low level of authority that we in the tax world would go to. Uh, it's essentially like an internal IRS memo. Um, it doesn't rise to the level of a IRS revenue ruling or regulations or even the statute. Uh, that is correct. It's more like a guidance to their field agents. Got it. And so, so Ravi, you mentioned that there are some differences in uh, the methodology of how this is calculated. Can you go over some of those differences? Yeah, sure. Let me touch upon uh, some of the notable differences. So the first one would be, if you look at most complexes, they calculate equalization debits based on daily gross redemptions. So there are some that perform these calculations on a weekly or even monthly basis. Another difference is calculation of daily earnings. Since mutual funds are typically in a position to determine their actual earnings on a daily basis, prorating such earnings over the period is most likely not a best practice. Though I have seen many situations where funds use the straight line proration approach to take their annual earnings and just prorate it on a daily basis. It is also considered a best practice to not include any amount that is subject to a prior Section 855 election in the accumulated earnings and profits because any 855 distribution is considered as having been paid in the year to which it relates. Ravi, and Section 855, just for those of us 
who don't know or don't have the code section, that's where a regulated investment company such as a mutual fund or ETF uh, will have a distribution requirement that relates to the calculation of net investment income or net capital gain in the prior year uh, that's paid in the next year. Um, it's commonly referred to as spillback. Uh, in the industry. So any spillback would not be included as part of the beginning earnings and profits calculation when you actually calculate these equalization debits. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that, Jay. Uh, the, other, the other big difference is in the area of book tax differences and how they are reflected in the calculation of accumulated earnings and profits. It is virtually impossible to generalize when all the book tax differences should be uh, reflected in the daily calculation of earnings and profits. However, the book tax differences, when they occur, will dictate as to when they should be included. So for example, wash sales should be reflected when they actually occur. But if the timing of the book tax differences is uncertain, which happens very often, best practice would dictate that all negative adjustments Negative adjustments would be the ones that would reduce accumulated earnings and profits. So all negative adjustments should be reflected at the beginning of the period, and then all positive adjustments should be reflected at the end of the period. Another area where funds would vary in their practice is how much of a haircut do they take after they calculate the available equalization amount. Some funds take a 10% haircut, some funds could take as much as a 20% haircut, and there are some funds who want to maximize the equalization amount, take no haircuts. So that's another area of difference. And another area that you see uh, disparity in terms of treatment among different funds is how to allocate the available equalization amount to various income categories. While the calculated equalization amount can be used both against ordinary income distribution as well as capital gain distributions, Funds take different approaches as to how to, how they allocate the available equalization between uh, these two buckets. So, Ravi, besides the differences you discussed, are there any other important issues to consider when we calculate equalization? Yes. Yeah, the first one is that the calculation is based on accumulated earnings and profits. So, therefore, any net operating losses and any capital loss carry forwards from prior years have to be taken into consideration before you can establish an earnings pool for calculating equalization. And the second thing is, with respect to equalization, funds can use equalization both for regular subchapter M distribution purposes, as well as for excise tax distribution purposes. And regular subchapter M being the calculation of net investment income and net capital gain for the fiscal year and the excise tax, the separate tax regime, which is calculated on a calendar year for net investment income and on the year ended October 31st for net capital gain. Now that is correct. Yes. Okay, so Ravi, that was a lot of differences that you went through there. I think suffice it to say that uh, when we see funds that are using equalization, especially funds that are setting it up for the first time, uh, there are several conversations that are happening between us as tax advisors, the administrator, uh, and management of the funds in order for management to determine what the appropriate methodology would be uh, for them and for their fund. And one of the things that we do like to see when we have funds using equalization is when an approach is set up, if 
equalization is used from year to year, that the methodology to calculate equalization is consistent from year to year, and you're not in a position where your fund is calculating different equalization values based upon different methodologies on a year-over-year -year basis. Yeah, I agree. Consistency is the most important thing in terms of establishing a methodology. They should document that methodology, and it should be uh, presented, if, if questioned, it should be presented to the IRS in terms of what their methodology is. Right, because there's no, there's no IRS guidance that sets out exactly how you need to calculate equalization. These differences that you are suggesting, some of them are rooted in, in some areas of tax law, but most of them are developed over the course of industry practice as funds have been using equalization, you know, really since um, the 1940 Act and all these funds were set up. Yeah, I agree. And, and the IRS, uh, since that old GCM, which goes back to the 1980s, the IRS is aware of uh, the equalization that is being calculated and used by uh, funds and has never really challenged it formally because the statute is very clear in terms of the use of equalization and it clearly allows uh, funds to use equalization upon redemption. And the only way the IRS can take that benefit away is if Congress changes the law. All right, thanks for taking the time to explain this to us, Ravi. Do you have any last takeaways for our listeners? Yeah, sure. I think uh, one thing that I would say is that don't be afraid of using equalization. I understand that there are several methodologies out there. I understand that the, there is very little guidance from the IRS, but it's an incredible benefit that is available to the funds and their shareholders. And if you are looking at very large capital gain distributions, and if you are looking at market conditions the way we have them today, you should definitely take the benefit of using tax equalization. Yes, that makes sense. That will wrap up today's podcast. Thank you, Ravi, and thank you to everyone who joined us today. Have a great day. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Chief Insights. Subscribe to this podcast series at cohencpa.com slash podcasts. To gain more insights that may impact you, visit us at cohencpa.com slash impact. Cohen & Company is not rendering legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Information contained in this podcast is considered accurate as of the date of recording. Any action based on information in this podcast should only be taken after a detailed review of the specific facts, circumstances, and current law.